Um, we are in uh, our week uh, four of our sermon series on worship, Simply Worship. And what's been interesting to me is that those of you that are like eating this up have been most vocal about saying, I love it. And then there's a vast majority of our church that are like, hmm. Um, as you chew on and meditate on what it is that we've been talking about. And I guess we begin here. Um, worship is not an event. Worship is not an event. It's a life, way of life. I loved what Trisha said this morning. Trisha, I missed you, girl. Where are you sitting, by the way? Where? <laughs> Sorry. Um, I don't know how many of you guys caught it. She just said it, and she went on. But, man... Essentially, what she was saying was all of our life is an opportunity for us to glorify and tell of God. All of life. There is this weird secular spiritual divide for some reason in churches or in Christianity that says what we do here or what we do in small groups or church is spiritual and then there's rest of life and Trisha was basically saying, I don't care what you do, what I do. All of life is an opportunity to display God and tell of his works. And so we've been talking about, see, here's why worship matters. First, worship matters because you are a worshiper. You and I, and this is where we begin, worship is not Christian, worship is not music, worship is something that all of us do. You and I are born worshipers. We are worshiping something, someone. Worship is the activity of the human soul. Worship. Literally, word comes from an old English word, worth shape, that is to be shaped by the worth of something. And we've begun this journey with this foundation so that we're all on the same page. Every single one of us is walking around with a massive billboard in our lives that says, that is my ultimate value, and I am shaping and bending my life around that. And I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a Christian or not, atheist, agnostic, Buddhist. I don't care if you consider yourself a religious person or not. Worship is at the heart of who you are and what you do. Because every single one of us, and this is sort of the picture that we've been using, has an altar uh, at the throne of our lives and our hearts. And we are bending our lives around someone or something that sits here. And we don't have to look very hard. Just follow the trail of our time, of our energy, of our money, of our resources. And hello, for some of us, our thought life. You follow that trail, and at the end of that trail is a throne. And something or someone, I am telling you right now, is sitting on the throne of your heart and of your life. And hello, that right there is the real object of your worship. And maybe God... It may not. And the more quickly we come around the truth and reality that you are going to, you can't opt out. You are going to bend your life around something or someone. Make that the ultimate value and worship that. So worship is not, well, I need to figure out how to worship God. Worship is I am already worshiping something or someone. What do I do to redirect that to the only thing that is worthy of worship in my life? And as we've been saying throughout, you do not have an option to opt out. You came in here worshiping. You are going to leave here worshiping something or someone. And you could either worship something that will distort your life. Or you could worship something that is worthy of our Worship. Worship matters because we also become what we worship. I'm going to say this again and again. If you don't like who you're becoming, take an inventory of what it is that you worship. If you do not like who you are becoming as a person, take an inventory of, another way to say it is, you want to change who you are, you have to change what you worship. That's why you will not come here and hear sermon series of, are you angry? Here are four steps to deal with your anger. Because if you want to deal with your anger issues, you got to get to the object of your worship first. If you're overwhelmed with worry or guilt, 
you got to get to the object of your worship. Can't deal with tip of the iceberg, external things first. Get to the heart of what it is that you worship. Why? Because whatever it is that you worship, you are going to be obsessed with. And whatever it is that you become obsessed with, you become, you imitate. And whatever it is that you imitate, you eventually become. What is the object of your worship? Who are you becoming? What are you becoming? Are you failing in self-control? Are you failing to love your neighbor? Are you failing to be honest? At the root of all is what you worship. Nobody in here goes, I lie because I'm just a liar. Or I'm dishonest because I just am prone to dishonesty. Why do you lie? Because there's something that is of ultimate worth to you. You lie to protect your reputation because that's your ultimate worth. You lie to protect your job or money. There's something that is of ultimate worth. And even though you don't want to lie, you don't enjoy lying, you lie. Same thing with love or self-control. What is at the heart of what you're looking at? And is it God? Or are you looking at something and saying, if I have that, then I'm worth something? Why does worship matter? Because God is worthy of our worship. I love this psalm. Psalm 96. One, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among the peoples. In verse 4. So will you say this with me? For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. What is the psalmist saying when he says, for great is the Lord and most worthy of praise? Let me just simplify this, okay, and take it from sort of church religious language. When you say, great is the Lord, most worthy of praise, you're literally saying with your lips and lies, God is of ultimate value to me. That's all we're saying when we're saying, I glorify you, I worship you. We're saying, God, you are my ultimate value. That's all we're saying. God, you are my ultimate beauty. Not him. Not her. Not that. God, you are my ultimate wealth. You are my ultimate wisdom. You are my ultimate goodness. When we say, great is the Lord, most worthy of praise, it's literally saying what that lives in our lives. You are my ultimate value. And our lives prove that God is our ultimate value. That's all worship is. You are my ultimate. Are we saying that? Are we living that? Worship is not an event. It's a way of life that declares you are my ultimate value. You alone are worthy. You alone are worthy of my worship. And when we do that, God, as we've been saying, is most Glorified, or as we sang, magnified. God is made big, huge. I'll say this God is not most glorified by what we do. Matter of fact, how many of us rob God of his glory because we do not say about God, you are my ultimate value, and something else is our ultimate value. So in the name of God, we use God and rob him of his glory. So this is, this is so incredibly important for us as we live our lives for mission, for cause, and we live and we pour out. It is important that you and I get to the place of saying, God, you are my ultimate value because if something else is our ultimate value, we run the risk of robbing God of his glory to deal with our insecurity, to deal with the issues of self-worth. Are you hearing me, church? 
Is there anything more tragic than someone who in the name of Jesus is robbing God of his value, of his worth? Because we make it all about us. Are you doing that? I'm tempted to do that all the time. And so I continually have to go, you're my ultimate worth. You're my ultimate value. You're my all. And now, when we do that, not only is God most glorified, but what? It also deeply satisfies us. <laughs> it's, the, it's the amazing thing about this truth. When God is most glorified by us, saying, you are my ultimate value, God. I worth you with that lips in our lives. The deepest, most enduring satisfaction is found in God. In Him. Not from God. Not from His gifts, stuff, things, but in God. So when God calls us to prize Him above all things, He gets the glory that is His alone. And we gain the joy. <gasps> Knowing him. If you perfectly loved God, if you and I perfectly valued God, completely enjoyed God, you could face anything in life. Amen? If you really valued his love over the love of anyone else, if you really valued his approval over the approval of anyone else, when someone criticizes you or someone breaks up with you or you have a financial reversal, it would be hard, it would be difficult, but it will not devastate you. If you do not value his love, his approval, his honor above anyone or anything else. When someone criticizes you, you'll devastate you. When there's a financial setback, it will devastate you. If you do not value his honor, his love above anything else, you'll walk around fragile. Fragile. Because the littlest thing can crush you. And then there's this, why does worship matter? There's a battle for your worship, man. And lady. <laughs> Satan can't stop worship from happening. You come out of your mother's womb going, worship! He can't stop that. So he'll do anything and everything to make sure that this right here is what? You're on the throne, she's on the throne, he's on the throne, career's on the throne, money is on the throne, status is on the throne. Anything and everything to get you to go worship it, worship it, worship it, worship it. Choices you and I make are not made in a vacuum. Things we champion, they don't just happen out of nowhere. Every single moment, second of your life, there is a battle. Psalm 95. Psalm 95 has been our main text. I want us to read this together, okay? It's a bit long, but that's okay. Psalm 95, verse 1. Psalm 95, verse 1. Here we go. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, only if you would hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. 
For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. We only have this Sunday and next Sunday to finish up this sermon series. And Carlton wishes we can go for two months, and I said, if we do that, half the church will stop showing up. So we need to, and then move on. Here's a definition of worship, and I haven't preached on this for 10 years on worship, and I don't know why I did that, and I will never do that again. This is too critical, too important. Worship, here it is, is our whole life response, both personal and corporate to God, for who He is and for what He has done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. And for the next two Sundays, I'm literally just going to unpack this definition as we conclude this sermon series. First and foremost, worship is to God. Who's the audience, church? Who's the audience, church? God's the audience. There's a mindset shift. You're not the audience. I'm not the Our mindset is that we come to this gathering, we sort of look at the worship team or the preacher as the performers, if you will, and we sit back and evaluate the performance. I have news for you. There's only one person who really matters in terms of this whole thing. His name is Jesus, and he is the only audience. His job, my job, our job is simply to come up, initiate, facilitate your worship to the only audience who matters, and that's God. So the only question you and I should be asking as we walk out here today is not, you know, I didn't really like that sermon. Why? You know, I didn't really like that song. The only question that matters is as you walk out is, God, what did you think of my worship today? Did you enjoy my singing? Did you like my prayer? Did you like the meditation of my heart? God, did you delight in the offerings and the sacrifice I gave you? That's the question you should be asking. That's the question we should be asking. He's the audience. I don't know why, but as I thought about this, I thought of my daughter, Sophie. I, I, I swore that I'd be one of those pastors that would never talk about my kids from the pulpit, and I'm violating every rule. Sophie. Sophie is, for all, well, she's tone deaf, okay? I'll just, she is, she's, she, Parker and Noah have kind of a, you know, they could sing, and, but Sophie, but I love it. I, lo- I was going to play this for you. This is how she sang happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear daddy. Happy birthday to you. What do you think I did? It melted my heart. You know why? Because I know. She loves me. And her song was a declaration of her love. Do you think God cares about the fact that some of y'all are tone deaf? (laughs) And in case you're wondering, am I tone deaf? If you're asking, yes, you are, okay? Do you think God cares? You know what he cares about? He cares about the fact that his son and his daughter showed up today and from the bottom of their hearts gave him praise. Ask yourself, what will your heavenly father think of your worship when you walk out here today? Worship is to God. Secondly, worship is. Worship is what, Peter? That's the point. Worship is. It's a verb. Worship is what we do. It's not what we watch. It's not what we observe. In the context of our culture, worship is something we come and watch. But worship is something you attend like a movie or a concert. Worship is something you and I enter into with all of our might. Worship is a participation sport in a spectator culture. I hate this arrangement. This arrangement was a big old stage and a guy and, and rows and people sit. I hate this. 
I don't know what it needs to look like, but somehow I wish we could order this sanctuary that communicated in space. Yes, there are times when you sit and listen, as we see in Psalm 95, but you recognize I come here to do, to act, to respond, not just to sit and watch. The book of Psalms, the worship manual for all the Bible. Can I just show you some of the action verbs that are found in it? Shout to God. Dance before him. Clap your hands. Bow down. Kneel. Lift up your hands. Tell of his might. Stand in all. Still your heart. Cast down your idols. Make a loud noise. Run to him. Worship is a verb. It's something we do. Do you get that? It's something we, now, now, I am an enormous basketball guy. I don't play it. I love to watch it. March Madness, anybody? Let me show you this game. I wish I was at, but I watched this game. Thank you, Ariel. The point is so obvious, I feel stupid making it. Who, maybe like two, three people, in the midst of that goes, you know, I, I just, I'm just appreciating with my mind. You know, I, I, I'm just not the, I'm just not the, woo I'm just going to appreciate that with my heart. We do that for a basketball game. And yet, I worshiped God. It is a natural response when you see something amazing to go, How? That is amazing! Even the most introverted Non-expressive, 
Asian guy among us. <laughs> Even you says, that was pretty good. Church, could it be that when God is not greatly praised, it's because we don't see how great he is. Could it be that when our worship is small, it's because our picture of God is Could it be that if we give God itty-bitty praises, it's because in our minds, God is. I want there to be freedom in this church. Can I get an amen? That means that there are those of us who worship God, and the way we respond to the greatness of God is in, mm, you're amazing. You are great. And we would not judge that brother or that sister and say, you go on with your bad self. But then there are those of us for whom we want to say, yes, yes, you are amazing. And that we as a church would say to that brother or sister, you go on with your bad self. Can we be that church? That we would be the kind of church that realizes worship is, we shout, we kneel, we bow down, we stand still, we bend our knees, we clap, we raise our hands, and that we respond to God. Worship is. Third, worship is our whole life response. Our whole life response. Romans 12, 1, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Paul doesn't say offer your songs as sacrifices. It's way bigger than that. In view of all that God has done, in view of all that God has done, the only appropriate response is all of me. And so I love what you said, Tricia. It's all of me. And the posture that gets to this all of me is Psalm 95.6. Come, let us bow down. Let us kneel. It's the posture of surrender. It's the posture of vulnerability. This is why worship might not make sense to some of y'all who are having a really good year. But true worship doesn't happen without vulnerability. True worship doesn't happen without surrender. True worship doesn't happen without submission. True worship is recognizing that the point of worship is not coming and saying, God, I've got these needs, I've got these goals, I've got this agenda. Will you bend yourself around my agenda and my will? I... 20-some years of pastoring, this is anecdotal, meaning it's testimonies. But here's what I've heard hundreds, possibly many, many hundreds of times from people. I have heard over and over again, people share this story, something like this. Peter, God became real to me when I came to the point of surrender. Is that anybody's testimony here? Clap if this is your testimony. If you are sitting there going, what is that like? I don't know what that's like. I can't explain it except what Scripture says. I am telling you, God is not going to become real to somebody who is coming to him and saying, you bend your will to mine. God somehow becomes real when you and I point, come to the point of end of ourselves and we say, I'm done negotiating with you. I am done putting conditions before you. I will serve you if. I will love you if. I simply come and I submit and I surrender. For some reason, over and over and over again, people say, that is when God became real to me. John Newton, what you will, when you will, how you will. 
Can you pray that today and mean it? True worship, true prayer is not coming to God and saying, here's my list, do it, answer it. Here's my agenda, do it, answer it. True worship is coming and saying, not my will, say it, but yours be done. True worship. I come bow down. Are you there yet? Have you come to the end of yourself yet? True worship, whole life response. True worship is both personal and corporate. You know, most of my life I thought that you went to church to worship. I'm seeing that the better approach is we go worshiping to church. Let me say that again. We go worshiping. It's a flip of mentality. It's recognizing worship is not an event. It's a way of life. Worship is not just this corporate thing where we gather once a week. Every moment of every day is an opportunity for me to be a living sacrifice to God. And that means that regardless who's up here, who's singing, who's preaching, I am coming ready to worship because I came to this thing, Peter, already worshiping God. I tell you, church services, corporate gatherings would be a whole lot better if this was filled with people who've been pursuing God for six days. Church as a refill or a tank up is a disaster, you guys. Can I say that again? I'm glad that you guys come, we gather, and we need to, we must, it's important, and that this refreshes us, and that this challenges us, it is a critical component, but if the corporate gathering is the only time you have during the week for spiritual intake, it will result in anemic, lifeless worship of your life. Worship is both personal and corporate. For whatever reason, this past month, I've had lots of conversations with folks who've said to me, Peter, I wanted to commit myself this year to personal relationship and pursuing that with God, but I'm distracted, so on and so forth. So I gave this advice to a couple because this is what I'm doing, and it was extremely helpful. So let me just share this with you. I've been going through the Psalms for my personal devotions, partly because of the sermon series. And I began it with something called a 30-day challenge. You know what that is? 30-day challenge. Here's all it is. I read a small portion of the Psalms for that day, and I'm following Eugene Peterson's guide. There's lots of really good Bible apps. Um, And basically, I read a portion of the Psalm, and what I do is I find one attribute of God, one facet of his character, his name, something about God, one facet. And here's what I do. I carry that with me a whole day. So maybe it's God's faithfulness. The fact that he remains the same. Maybe it's his mercy. Maybe it's the fact that he's my heavenly father. Maybe it's the fact that he's encouraging savior. Maybe it's the fact that he's holy. But I find one facet, one attribute of God, and I carry that with me all day. I chew on it. I meditate on it. I journal it. I talk to God about it. I talk to other people about it. Sometimes I go sleeping thinking about it. One facet, one character. And here's what's happened. God isn't just some generic God. He all of a sudden becomes personal. Another thing for someone like me who gets easily distracted, it allows me to do this thing where I get to focus in on God, recognizing it's not just 15 minutes a day with God that matters, but throughout the day. And it's a word that anchors me. See, I go for three, four hours not even thinking about God, and all of a sudden, faithful. Faithful. He's faithful. And I chew on it some more. And I meditate on it. And I pray to God about it. I journal it some more. 30-day worship challenge. Maybe for some of us, this is a simple way to go about saying, God, it's both personal and corporate. What would happen, you guys, if, if we all came worshiping to church, filled with an awareness of his presence before we even reached the door? I'll tell you what, Carlton's job will be a lot easier. CC, do you sometimes feel like they're here, but they're elsewhere? Yes? 
And what do you feel the need to do as a lead worshiper when you feel that? Press harder. Work harder. Press harder. Work harder. Do you know what would happen if every single one of us came here worshiping because we've been in the presence of God? It wouldn't matter what he does. It wouldn't matter what I do. I am telling you, it wouldn't matter because you're here. God, I've been doing this, meditating, thinking the whole week. The whole week. Here we go. I'm not the scolding type. So don't take this as a scolding thing. But we come in here drinking our lattes. And I drink two of those in the morning. So I'm not knocking lattes. <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> so that explains a lot. Okay. I drink two lattes. But you guys, how about if you got here a little earlier? For what, Peter? How about you walked in a little earlier and you prepared your heart and you anticipated, expected God to do something? What if we just made that disciplined commitment to say, that's important to me, and I get there just a little bit earlier. I've been worshiping God all week. I'm going to get there early and I'm going to anticipate and expect God to move. Don't do it for legalistic reasons. God doesn't love you more or love you less. Don't do it for, well, now, see, he told me to go. I'm, no, don't do it for any other reason than, God, I want to encounter you. I want to meet with you. I want you to be real. It's both personal and, here it is, corporate. It's one of the most important but obvious and overlooked things about this psalm. You tell me what the point is when the psalmist says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout a lot to the rock of our salvation. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. It's what? It's in the plural. Worship is us. It's corporate. It's to be done in community, not just alone. My sense of the scriptures over the years is that individual personal worship is preparation for corporate worship where the transforming encounter of God happens. You've heard me quote this a zillion times so you could quote it better than I can. In The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis says, in each of my friends, there's something that only some other friend could fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to fully bring out everything about that friend. I want lights other than my own to show all the facets of God. And now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to Charles's jokes. So far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less. Man, when I lost friend A, I thought I was going to have more friend B. But what I realized is I lost that side of friend B that only side a can, friend A could bring out. Instead of having more of my friend B, I realized that I have less. He could only know individual human beings in fellowship, in community, in corporate setting. Because he only see a part of that friend that only you can bring out. If this is true for finite, small, puny, five seconds here I'm gone, like a mist, human being. What are the ramifications when it comes to God? If we could only know finite human beings and community, what are we talking about when we say, how do we get to know this massive How do we get to know this God better unless we pray together? How do we get to know this God better unless we worship together? How do we get to know this God better unless we fellowship together? This is the reason why corporate Christian worship is so critical and it's so critical that you and I be here together. 80% of American Christians say, that you could be a good Christian and not go to church. And I have no idea what they mean by good Christian. Do they mean you can be saved and not go to church? Yeah, because you're not saved by going to church. But I'm telling you, you will never know God as he truly is unless you are in community. 
You will never know God as he truly is unless you are in community. I know this goes straight up against a Western individualistic, I'm going to find my own spiritual mentality that is just oozing from our culture. But if you are someone who is here and saying, I'm serious and sincere about getting to know this God, you cannot do it alone. You know what else you can't do it in? I also realize a new phenomenon these days is, oh, I don't do it alone. I've got my small group. I've got my small group. I don't have to do the whole church thing. I've got my small group. The problem is that small group is just like you. If you're 20-something, skinny jeans wearing, latte drinking, I grew up in the suburbs, but I'm urban guy or girl. (laughs) I'm sorry, did I pick on somebody? (laughs) Half the church? I'm not 20-something. Sometimes we're skinny jeans, but I'm not 20 You guys, if you are, if you are, if you are in a small group of people and they are just like you, how will you see other facets of God? It's crazy to me. Someone says, well, it's just my, I've got these seven, eight people who contradicts you in that group, who challenges you in that group, who are the people that are showing you different facets of God in that group? When we have the young and the old, Can we give a shout out for the old saints in this church? I love the fact that there are older saints in this church who teach me signs of God and I will never know. And by the way, I am that older saint for half of y'all. How about different race ethnicity? How about the fact that there are people who see radical signs of God when Kelly sings certain things and Carlton sees certain things, and I sense that there is a sign of God, that they are singing about and connecting with God, it blesses me. It may be foreign to me. It may make me feel comfortable. But I see sight of God that I will never see just among Koreans. Male, female. Do you see why corporate worship, where we are doing life together with people that are radically different from us, is critical to seeing God? And all of his facets. This is the reason why Isaiah 6, the angels are singing holy, holy, holy to one another. Worship, lastly, is to God for who he is and what he has done. Let me ask you, church, the question, how do you find peace and calm and poise in the midst of difficult times? How do you find it? Huh? Prayer, Tom says. Psalm 57 is an interesting psalm. It's a strange psalm. It's a beautiful psalm. The psalmist is clearly going through a lot, a lot A lot of trouble in our time. Look at verse 4. I am in the midst of lions. I am forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Does it sound like he's going through a little? Yes? Yes. The thing is, instead of asking God to change it, though, Instead of asking God, this is, Lord, give me success, give me healing, give me deliverance now. Right in the smack of this psalm, right in the smack in the middle of taking an inventory of everything that's going on in his life, look what he says in verse 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Lions are after me. But be exalted. And then he goes right back talking about his problems. Because <laughs> you're all like, oh, okay, that makes more sense. Okay, now watch. Verse 6. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path. So here's what the psalmist is saying. 
God, I'm in trouble. Do something. You're good to me. You're loving. But God, where are you? I'm in trouble. Anybody relate? You all walked in here like that this morning. But then this is how this psalm ends. This is amazing. My heart, oh God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake my soul. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. Verse 10. For great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, oh God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Do you notice something? He never asked God for anything. He never asked God for anything. He never says, help me here, help me there. All he says is, I see how great your love is. I see how great your faithfulness is. Now, there's plenty of places in the Bible where God says, ask, seek, and knock. But this psalmist doesn't, and yet he walks away steadfast, calm, poised. Why? He's not calming himself through petition. He's calming himself through worship. He's not calming himself by saying, do it, help, sir. He calms himself through worship. One way to face trouble and trials in your life is to get defiant and say, I'm not a quitter, I'm a fighter. Any fighters out there? Well, I ain't going down. I'm going to fight this. Anybody? You could face it that way. Or you could face it through worship. Paul has four lengthy prayers in the New Testament. Colossians 1, Philippians 1. Ephesians 1 and 3. And in it, he's praying for his friends all over the world. But never once does he pray that they would overcome their problems. Never once does he pray that they would get through their struggles and trials. Never once, by the way, does Paul ever pray for someone's happiness. (laughs) Never once does he go, I just pray that they would be happy. Never once. Do you know how he prays? It's like he's getting in their faces going, I pray that you would know the love of God. I pray for vivid faith that sees how high, how wide, how deep is his love for you. He says, I pray that they will be so aware of your powerful presence. Over and over again, he doesn't ever pray for overcoming trials, overcoming problems, or for their happiness. He prays that they would have vivid, assuring faith of his love and of his presence. He doesn't even mention their problems. Do you know why? Our problems, a great deal of our problems is a matter of our perspective, not our circumstances. DC, I'm almost done. Look up here. Look up here. If you really believe that God, in His wisdom, knows what is best for you, would you still be anxious today? If you really believe that God in his love desires what is best for you, would you still be angry today? And if you really believe that God in his power and his sovereignty has the power to bring his good result about in your life, would you still be so tired from trying to organize and manage your circumstances that you have no control over? The reason why we're not at ease and calm and poised is not to stop telling yourself if only the circumstances would change. The reason why is you don't trust his wisdom, you doubt his love, and you don't believe he is who he says he is. 
Do you see why throughout the Bible, they don't calm themselves through defiance and I'm just gonna, they calm themselves through what? Say it with me, worship. As they seek God for who he is and what he has done. The reason why I mention this is because sometimes it's hard to see what God is up to. Can I get an amen? Sometimes it's hard to praise God for what he has done because you're sitting there going, you haven't done anything. That's why the psalmist doesn't praise God for what he has done. He praises God for what? Who he and who is he? And I'm going to end with this. Who is he? Verse 4 and 5, he's creator. He's creator. He's eternal. He's infinite. He's timeless. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything or anybody. If not one more person on earth chose to love him, believe in him, or worship him, God will still be who he is and will always be. Is that good news? Heck yes. But he's our father. He's creator. Huge, awesome, gigantic, massive. He's enthroned on high, and yet he has lowered himself to take notice of our lives. And he knows us even better than we know ourselves. And this creator, majestic God, says, you're my son, you're my daughter, you're my child, and I care about every single little detail of your life. I can't, I can't, I, I don't know how to better communicate the awe and awesomeness of the one who created the heavens and the earth saying to me, I'm your daddy. Call me Abba. How do you know you've worshipped? It's not you come here and go, well, the sermon was inspirational, music was good, and I got a little lift, but tomorrow, Monday, boom, worry all of a sudden. You know you've worshipped when somehow today a song, a truth, a prayer, spirit prompting, a truth about God catches fire in your heart. And you say, I always knew he was like that, but now I know. I'd always seen his value, Peter, but now I know. I'd always known of his beauty, but now I know. I'd always been told of his love, stinking, you do that cross thing every Sunday. But now I know. Who he is 